Welcome back, everybody. Thirsty Thursday, number 22, training for all departments. Tonight, we have a, an excellent group of folks here with us, um, some retired career men, some guys that are still working on the job, um, vast amounts of experience, um, calls that that you can dream up. These guys have probably done it. So uh, I, I can say that I'm personally excited for what we're talking about tonight, um, just as, as I am for, for every other night, but I think this one's going to be really good. So uh, with that, we're going to kick it around the horn and uh, do the introductions and we'll get started because uh, again, we try to keep it to an hour and, and who knows how long we could talk tonight, but um, that's where we're going to go. So Trevor, take it away. Great. Thanks, Ben. Uh, really excited tonight. We have a great panel full of people. Uh, these are folks I have a great deal of respect for in the fire service. Uh, some I've known since I was uh, a rather, let's just say a lot younger and some I haven't known quite as long. But, um, you know, a lot of great background, especially in the um, in the training and experience aspects of whatever's going on. And uh, looking forward to throwing some questions at them and seeing what they have to say. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to Bobby and then we'll get to our guests of honor. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, everybody. Hey, thanks, guys, for coming on. This is awesome. Um, you know, what we want to talk about tonight is um, just a little bit about what the different challenges are between uh, urban career departments and volunteer departments, the, the challenges of training. Um, so we just recently um, we just recently had a, a anniversary of the uh, uh, Black Sunday in uh, FDNY, um, which had to do with the uh, Guys had to bail out four four windows, and they had some fatalities. And um, you know, the backstory behind that was there were conversations about having a rescue rope in their gear. Uh, but in New York City, um, when you're talking about you know twelve or thirteen thousand people, um, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking to do anything like that. It's, it's it's millions of dollars in training and equipment and things like that. And so, obviously, after the Black Sunday. They did receive that kind of equipment and that kind of training. So there's challenges, I'm sure, in the urban departments when you want to make a change. And I'm sure Mike will probably talk about some of the, the Mayday and uh, RIT things he's working on in Baltimore City. But um, there's big challenges when you have thousands of people that you have to get trained or equipped or, or whatever it may be. And that's So we want to talk a little bit in the first half just about the, the challenges of what it takes for larger uh, urban departments to kind of get the training out there as new things come along or whatever. Uh, but also, we want to talk about what happens here. And luckily, the, the three guys we have on have all had experience in urban departments. But they've also had experience in smaller uh, mixed volunteer departments with training and things like that. Had their hand in that, too. So we, we want to talk about the challenges in the smaller departments. Um, you know, getting the training out where um, you don't have quite a strong uh, uh, chain of command at times. Um, where you know, a lot of times the person that's in charge of you is elected by the popular majority, those types of things, and uh, all those things have an effect on training in, in, in very different ways. So it's going to be a fun night for us just to talk about these things, and uh, there's a lot of people here, so I just kind of want to get started. So um, if you three guys, we'll start with Dipsky there and go to Steve and Mike. But if, if, uh, Dipsky, if you want to talk about your uh, your history of training in uh, your fire department over D.C. and also in Ocean City a little bit. And then we'd just go around to kind of do introductions for everybody. So thanks for everybody for coming. All right. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Greg Dipsky and started, grew up in Ocean City, Maryland and started in the cadets. I think Trevor was a year or two maybe behind me. You know, uh, cadets 14 to 18. So it's like a junior program. And... Um, then I was a fireman, and then I said, I want to be a career fireman. 
So I went on the other side of the Bay Bridge and was lucky enough to get hired by DC at the age of 20 and gave them 31 years and retired in 2016 uh, after 31 years. And I spent uh, at least two thirds of my career in like special ops, either on an engine in the house with the collapse unit with the rescue three or actually on a, on a rescue company. So that's kind of my background. And I volunteered the whole time I was a career uh, in a you know career department. I always volunteered somewhere. Uh, did like four years at Kent Land, then I moved and lived in Waldorf and volunteered there. So I've seen it from both sides, trying to be as active as possible. That's it for me. Steve? Hey, how are you guys? Uh, Steve Hovenden, uh, where I started. Uh, in Delaware, there's a little small little rural fire company called Millville back in the 80s. <clears throat> uh, after that, I spent about five years there and uh, went back to Baltimore where I grew up and was a Baltimore City police officer for a few years. And then I got hired in the city of Wilmington, uh, Delaware. So I've been there for 26 years, hold the rank of lieutenant. Uh, in my career in Wilmington, I spent 18 years on Rescue One. After that was disbanded, I uh, got promoted and uh, stay in special ops. I'm actually assigned to a unit called Squad 4, who takes care of all the special ops and the elements of uh, what that entails. Uh, other than that, I'm an instructor, uh, pro board instructor, pro board uh, officer, uh, 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 rescue tech, all that stuff. So um, that's about it. I'm, I'm kind of boring. So. <laughs> cool, Mike, you want to round us out? Yeah, I'm, I'm Michael Wood. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a firefighter, uh, actually a chauffeur up in Baltimore City, and I've been, I'm on my 17th year up there, and I just took promotion from, uh, from acting lieutenant to uh, the driver and tillerman, and I also do uh, training coordination for Ocean City. Uh, I've been, uh, I guess, hamstrung, I guess, so to speak, because I've always been in a large department, and wasn't until moving down here to Ocean City that I actually got a uh, got a look at the volunteer world and uh how small departments operate so it was uh i was shell-shocked so to speak to, to be exposed to both of them at the same time i was never a volunteer before i joined the department uh before i joined baltimore so it was uh it was eye-opening in uh in lots of great ways and um it presents lots of challenges too so uh i'm i'm excited to be here to talk about it tonight Awesome. Thank you guys again for joining us. Um, like, like we've said, it's going to be a great evening. How can we not get started without a cheers? Cheers. All right, boss man. She's all yours. All right, gentlemen, i got some questions for you. Um, as you all know from your experience in Ocean City, and it's a little bit surreal for me to say this because I've been going almost, it'll be five years next November, believe it or not. Um, Ocean City is that kind of weird hybrid where it can be a small town, small department. It's a uh, combination career volunteer department, very active on both sides. And yet we become the second largest city in the state for four months out of the year, second only to Baltimore. So we have you know, a high call volume for a lot of the year. Um, we have a lot of urban issues. We have a, you know, some suburban issues. And you know, up until more recently, we had even some rural issues out towards the mainland and uh, you know, the, the southwest part of the territory. 
So you all come from different areas and also have that experience in Ocean City. So I want to talk about two different things and see if you guys can weigh in on this. Um, and Mike, I've had a chance to go up and actually uh, do some adjunct instructing for Baltimore City. And, and it's, it's very unique to see how a lot of the urban, strictly urban departments handle themselves. And very much like in the situation I'm in, a lot of people get in their silos. So if we have the let's say the Baltimore city way or the DC way or the Wilmington way. And the neat thing about ocean city is we bring a lot of people from outside with a lot of different viewpoints, which is great for training. Um, but to the point that was being discussed prior to coming live, sometimes that can be a little bit confusing because we're trying to find that proficiency of that, that go-to way, the 85% way that we, we uh, try to handle most of our calls. So you guys bring a lot of skill sets, a lot of knowledge, but if, if you guys could talk about you know, your experience from not only the combination fire service, you know, the, the small town, big city of Ocean City uh, combination there versus where you focus on, in your main career jobs. And you know, what are some what are some things you can see if, if you had a chance to kind of build your own fire department based on all this stuff? What are the things that you would cherry pick and best practices you bring forward? So, um, Dip, I'll. As, as the as the senior as a senior man here, and that's uh, you know I, I mean that with all all due respect and love. That guy down on that. Uh, no, 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 I can't point right with this thing. Hey, you're, you're, you're already pulling, you're already pulling a pension check, so brother, I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of you, Dip, and uh, you know let let us know your thoughts on stuff. Um. Well, training. I was involved with a lot of the training in D.C. Being on the rescue, and it was kind of. The, the battalion chief kind of let us, we had a semi-guideline in writing, but he kind of let, my my chief at least, let the company officers, you know, he gave us free reign. As long as we were out doing something, you know, pertaining to our job, you know, he was, he was all for it. And, you know, we kind of got to some places that a couple of times we might have got in a little bit of trouble for being there but my theory is it's easier to beg forgiveness and ask permission sometimes so you know but we took advantage of some abandoned buildings and did a lot of you know training and we probably shouldn't have been in them um but on on the other hand there's a lot if you have scheduled training I've run into this, and I don't know if any of you guys in the career departments have run into this. You have scheduled training. They say, next tour, you're going to the training academy to do this. And I come in as an officer, and, you know, two or three of my guys have called in sick or got annual leave because they didn't want to go. So it's, you know, so sometimes it's, it's, it's better instead of having something set in stone just to kind of kind of wing it and, you know, being up here, like with training and ice training, you know, last year we couldn't do it because there was no ice. Now this year you never know. So again, you got to be kind of flexibility seems to be the name of the game. So yeah, Dip, and I hear you. I'm having problems doing ice training in my department right now too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's you know, and I've been told sometimes that when I was doing some training that it was, uh, you know, guys wanted to learn about the widget that's on the piece that's used once every 10 years, you know, instead of wanting to go and they, they don't know the proficiency of, you know, pulling lines and throwing ladders. That is the, 
I don't care what anybody says. That is the basics of the fire service. If you can't pull lines proficiently or throw ladders proficiently, doesn't have to be professionally, just show some proficiency. There's no real sense to move on to, you know, the, the widget that's used once every 10 years. We use lines and ladders every day. So that's my theory. Yeah, and, and to kind of dovetail into that a little bit, um, yeah, I know that especially in the larger departments, it might go by individual companies or in a place like Ocean City, it might be based on the shift where you almost have four separate fire departments, A, B, C, and D, that kind of do their own thing. So from your guys' experience, and uh, you know, Steve, I'll pop over to you next, uh, how, do, how do you combine those things? How do, you, how do you get, like what Greg's talking about, the people might be disinterested in the company-wide training, but yet make sure that your crew is the most proficient it can be without creating so much uh, variance in the way people operate? Yeah, um, and to add with what he was saying, um, I am familiar with Ocean State. I worked part-time there for a few years back in uh, – uh, maybe about, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Um, so I'm familiar with, you know, the career volunteer part-time situation you got down there. And uh, I know with the, the three career guys that are here right now, um, it starts with minimum standards and it, that starts at the, at the fire academy itself. So we're, we have the luxury of being, you know, we were on all career departments. We didn't have the combination with the, the volunteers or even a part-time staff. So you work side by side with the minimum standards of those guys coming out and, and whoever coming out of the fire academies, which when you get to the combination departments, a little bit different, <clears throat> you have different levels now of minimum standards. Um, I, I um, the experience I had with some of the volunteer combination departments is that they held their career guys on a higher level than volunteers, which um, it, that it, is it wrong is it right. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but with the scheduling, if you ask me, that is the toughest uh, aspect of it. Um, with guys being off sick, Kelly Day, vacation, things like that, and you're trying to get minimum training, even a monthly training drill or uh, something that your battalion wants, something that admin wants, it can be very difficult. Then you add, if you would add like a volunteer aspect into there, how do you schedule that? Maybe it has to be at night, weekends, uh, and then part-time. You know, they're just part-time employees. They show up whenever they're they're scheduled, even if they do show up. So, the scheduling is huge, um, but I believe minimum standards, um, especially with the uh, with you know DC, Baltimore, and even Wilmington, it's coming out of the fire academy. At least we had that, uh, which which is a good thing. It's a good thing. So, uh, understood. And uh, Mike, from your perspective, and especially in Baltimore, uh, I know a lot of departments have SOP or mission driven tasks. Whereas, you know, to Steve Dip's point, sometimes as the officer in that combination department, you might have to base your tactics on not what your SOGs or SOPs or procedures are going to be, but actually who you got riding with you that day. So, you know, if you guys could kind of talk and Michael kick it over to you, um, you go down that rabbit hole for a minute as well. In addition to the other things we just talked about. Yeah. You know, that's something, that uh, all the major urban and metropolitan departments have a have an advantage with is that their foundation is built around uh, you know their MOPs, SOGs, their training manuals, and they they're able to churn out that factory of trained firefighters uh, much more easily because of that. Uh, you know, with uh, a big thing, of course, is having their own academy, whereas you know, down here in Ocean City, 
we have to kind of piecemeal that together. So we're not operating off of our set standards, uh, which obviously are, are paramount. You know, we do have to wing that. And, you know, the one thing that uh, that's important to remember is that, you know, in these large areas, you have uh, all these different jurisdictions within, uh, you know, and we can refer to them as box areas as well, but not just that, but you, t you take a city like Baltimore, and if you are strictly downtown in Baltimore, and I'll come at it from a perspective of truck companies, uh, because that's what I can relate to the best. Uh, if you're a driver of a truck company in downtown Baltimore, 99% of the time, when you go up that aerial ladder to the roof, you're operating on a flat roof. And your vertical ventilation is all based in flat roof scenarios. Now, if you go over to northwest Baltimore, your drivers, when they throw that aerial, they're going to balloon frame construction, single family dwellings, um, that were built back in the 50s, and they have a heck of a pitched roof on them. So they're dealing with the knee wall issue and possible fire spread because of the balloon frame. So the thing to remember that within departments like this, the training that you get at the academy, those minimum standards, is, is based solely uh, initially on a book and the certifications that come along with the state's, you know, recommendations. But um, within a major fire department, there's a bunch of little fire departments. And that's an example is those, uh, that truck company in the Northwest section of Baltimore, their tactics and strategies are completely different than a downtown truck would be. And a lot of times those worlds never mix. And that sounds crazy, and even in a small city like Baltimore, but we found that without progressive training, without taking members of these, uh, you know, reputable members of these truck companies and sending them out to the academy to sit down with instructors and talk about some of the tactics that they use, that our training remains stagnant. And some of these guys, and I, I'm, I'm one, I was on the same truck company in downtown Baltimore for 16 years up until just two months ago. So now that I'm climbing on peaked roofs that are all slate, uh, it's almost like relearning the job. And that's a, that's a curse of some major departments because there is no movement. It's not like Ocean City where one day you're riding at Station 4 and the next day you're down at headquarters. Um, instead of on the medic unit, you're driving a tower out of there. Uh, and then the next day you're on, you know, you know, your next shift, you're up at station three riding an engine. Um, so you're not as dynamic in these larger departments. And because of that, you have to be more proactive and progressive with your training and realize that within these major departments, there literally is, if you have, uh, you know, 16 truck companies, you have 16 little truck company departments that all operate with different tactics. Sure, we were all trained under the same umbrella of the Baltimore City Fire Academy, but recognize what that academy teaches. It teaches to a set standard uh, developed by a textbook, and then you're sent out into the world to learn the job as your jurisdiction dictates it uh, by men that have been in that jurisdiction for years and have developed tactics that work with them 
their manpower, their apparatus, and so on down the line. So uh, I know that was a little long-winded, but uh, that essentially is uh, is the the pro and con of a of a large metropolitan department versus uh, you know a department that's mixed um, in its in its uh, sizes and and of course its its manpower complements. No, Mike, that makes perfect sense. And Bobby, um, get you to weigh in here because I know you you're in charge of uh, to a great degree of taking all these different thought processes and facts and opinions and trying to put them together in something operational. How's that working out for you? <laughs> well, I, I pass the baton to Mike over there. So, um, no, I, one thing that I've learned through all this is I remember uh, we've met uh, DCs like a, just a firing a hiring factory now. Um, they just hire people after people. And, and I remember talking to guys who were going through their academy uh, in D.C., and I remember they were very particular about this is called a hook, uh, this is called a pipe, this is called – and I thought, you know, how silly that is, um, you know. And, and, and it's just I – thought, I thought it was more of like a historical kind of thing. However, after hearing it for a while and seeing things happen, I, I saw some fires in Ocean City – where everyone had different terminology and things were misunderstood and 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 so um you know i don't want to get into specifics of it because i don't want to implicate anybody but it was what was happening was people had a different language so some people called it a deuce and a half some people called it a large line you know some people called it a long line some people called it a mall line some people well when you're riding down the street and you're going to a working fire and someone yells out to pull a mall line and you think it's a long line or whatever um, mistakes happened, I think just basically on a terminology. So I think what I learned from all of that was even though we have so many different influences in Ocean City, um, every single Mid-Atlantic department I think is represented in our part-time staff at times, um, we have to develop an Ocean City way. And that's where the, Mike is really trying to do that, that this is the best way in Ocean City to do what we need to do. And we probably need to adopt more terminology and more radio discipline with this, all of that kind of stuff, things like that. So um, one, one thing I really wanted to kind of touch on with you guys in this first half hour though, is um, I really wanted to touch on what are the challenges when you have a change? Um, and I, I'm gonna go to you last, Mike, cause I know you're, you're going through a huge Mayday um, writ um, uh, pro, uh, project in Baltimore city. The question is, once you come up with there's a new thing coming out that really needs to be done in your fire department, so I'll start with you, Dipsky. How did you guys translate that to a large urban department to go basically citywide? So uh, can you guys talk, did, did you have experiences with that? And, and how did it work? And how did you actually make it happen? So Dipsky, I'll go to you first, bro. What was the question again, Bobby? Because so, you were like, speak <laughs> up. <laughs> um. So if you had a, a significant change that would happen in D.C. fire that you needed to do training department wide, how did you guys, did you have experience with that? How did you implement that training department wide, say a new uh, RID or a new procedure or something like that? How did you guys implement that training citywide? Well, I was lucky enough to be in special ops division when they decided to um, I guess I forget exactly what the word is, but we kind of got like academy status or whatever. So um, one of the first classes that I was involved with was a rope rescue class. 
So we got all the interested parties that had some knowledge of, of rope rescue, got them all together. We all sat down and yeah, argued and fought and hashed it out, but and came up with our own manual and a way that we wanted to teach it. And it worked out, it worked out pretty good that, um, you know, in other words, like you were talking before, the Ocean City way, that was the DC way. We took a little bit of, of CMC stuff and a little bit of, of, you know, all the places and a couple of guys have been to classes here and there. And then we put it all in a book, but we, we tweaked it to try to A, make it the DC way and B, to try to make it as simple as possible. You know, you can have trigonometry ways to do things, but three o'clock in the morning, who can remember that? You know, you want to try to make it as simple as possible. Build up three o'clock in the morning when people are not bright eyed and bushy tailed, you know. So these are the knots we want to use. There's five of them instead of 55 of them, you know, so and things like that. So that's, that's, you know, we, we took it and, and ran with it. And then it went on to, well, I've talked to some of the guys up there. They even um, got, you know, the collapse and, and trench. We've got our own uh, textbook and, and teaching for that and, and a confined space, et cetera. So it wasn't a incident that happened. It was just we, we foresaw and said, let's try to do it this way instead of somebody else's way. So. Cool, Steve. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Bobby, you said probably the worst word in the fire service language, and that is the word change. Um, everyone <laughs> knows about that. Uh, so, how do we look at that as a as a like a, um, a career department? Well, the, I mean, it goes down to simple as your boss is changing as to a piece of equipment changing. So it, it gets it's difficult sometimes. So uh, the biggest thing is the need for that change. And as a supervisor, I mean, uh, we have to almost uh, educate ourselves, not only in the change or why, or, you know, why do we need that change and what are we changing to? So we actually have to buy into that first to actually implement it to our personnel with a positive attitude, whether you like it or not. Because in a career department, when change is coming, it's coming and it's permanent. So I always tell my guys, and they hear it all the time, that it's not a good idea unless it's their idea. So you can complain all you want. It's their idea. We're going to it. You know, um, and, you know, I've been uh, in the fire service uh, since like 88. So I don't even know what, I don't know how many years that is. The amount of change that we've had has been incredible. Um, just technology, writ, but there was no writ back then. We didn't even know what writ was. Um, just the, 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 we talk about, um, um, uh, you know, ropes and, and high angle, the amount of equipment, you know, even like now, the, the stuff that I trained on as uh, originally, we still have in our bag. We don't even bring it out anymore. And that, that's, it's antique compared to what we're doing now. Um, it's, it's, it's still, you know, we still use it but we don't even train with it anymore. So, but the technology uh, with computers and, uh, you know, the, 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 it, just our breathing apparatuses, the amount of uh, uh, technology that's built into that, the change that came with that, 
is incredible. So change is the hardest thing in the fire department to overcome um, as leaders or supervisors or senior men or whatever you want to call uh, what you are or who you are or who you're getting out to. It starts with that, that attitude of recognizing what the change is for, uh, a, a positive attitude to get that out to your personnel and then working with it, you know, making it your own. Uh, you know, say, for instance, that the, the thermal imaging cameras, you know, I remember the day that I, we first got an imaging a thermal imaging camera. This thing was a piece of crap. You know, uh, we didn't know how to use it. That's why, because we weren't trained on it. Now we have two on every piece of apparatus. You know, we wouldn't know what to do without them. So, uh, uh, you know, as leaders or company officers or, you know, inspiring uh, uh, um, company officers, it's the attitude that's going to help that change and your self-motivation to understand it, why it's there. And if it's a piece of equipment, if it's an SOP or SOG or whatever you want to call them. Um, and uh, and, it, and it starts and it's, it goes from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. So hope that helped. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, change is that word that no one wants to hear. And, uh, you know, there's different levels of what we can accomplish when we talk about change, of course. The easiest is absolutely going to be at the company level uh, when we're talking about major departments. Your changes at the company level can be made simply with the captain and uh, dissemination of, of his wishes to his lieutenants. And then that waterfall effect happens. Um, those those changes are, are easy to wrap your head around for the most part because they're at such a uh, a low level. Uh, now, when we get into the to major changes, such as a redevelopment of RIT or just operational changes in general, uh, you know the big hurdles that are seen, and I think uh, everyone can attest to this that's been in a large department is that. The first thing that gets discussed anytime we're making a major operational change is money, dollar signs. How much is this going to cost us? And there is a limit that they're willing to go and a limit that they're willing to spend um, in order to make any operational changes at the whoosh of the working class or the firefighters. Uh, you know, the other, the other large hurdle and I think that uh, I don't just speak for the department that I've worked with is you need in order to have a, a surefire catalyst for change. You need a major incident uh, that will mm -hmm. precipitate that or unfortunately you need a major accident that a lot of times unfortunately involves a line of duty death and then the money and the change, uh, those gates open up and just dump onto your lap and you're, uh, you're allowed to start doing that. Uh, that is the plague of a large department is that we, with the exception of technology, our change operationally is very much reactive. Uh, I think you have better opportunities in smaller mixed departments, such as uh, Ocean City, as an example, to be more 
progressive and more proactive in your training, uh, which will you know also facilitate that necessary change. Uh, just because it doesn't have as, as much channels that it has to go through, you know, and um, it's not only do you deal with money in these larger departments, you have such a large administration. And uh, I think one thing we can all agree on, too, when we speak of administration is, is that uh, a lot of times the good ideas at an operational level need to be the good ideas of the guys wearing the white helmets and egos uh, get in the way of that inexperience gets in the way of that and uh, sometimes where that disconnect is from uh, the black helmets to the white helmets it's hard to bridge that gap to explain why that change is necessary at an operational level because many times, you know, your, your administration has not rode on those rigs uh, in quite a while. And that makes it very difficult for that line of communication to be open, I think. Um, but, you know, those are some hangups that, uh, that do not allow for that operational style change, that major change uh, to occur in, in a lot of departments. You know, Mike, I, I agree with you. Uh, 98%, the only 2% I'm going to push back on you is that I don't believe it's that difficult. It's an unwillingness from the upper management to do it. Um, not not so much that it can't be done. It's it's that they don't want to do it. And I, I speak, y'all, I'll kind of get on both sides of this. But before I do, there's a burning question. I want to get back to the whole change management issue. But Steve, are you drinking wine? Is that what I'm I saying? I am absolutely. <laughs> okay, I, I just I had to check because first, let me say number one, you're you're a classy individual. I mean, I'm you probably Come step on. out. The, I mean, you probably step out of the shower to take a leak. That's how classy you are. <laughs> um, anyway, get, getting back to it, um, Mike, I agree with you 100. percent And here's here's one of the things that I've looked at, and we try to do this um, in Ocean City. I know I try to do it in my department. Same thing. There's a lot of things that look great on paper or you go to the latest uh, leadership conference and come back all full of piss and vinegar that we're going to make these changes from the administrative level on down. And there's a lot of wisdom in the trenches. And Greg had mentioned this a little bit earlier. You know, if you could take a core group of your hard chargers in your department, whether it's the special ops guys, the truck guys, the hose folks, whatever, it doesn't matter. But instead of having an edict come down from on high that looks great on paper and say, you know, so shall be done, this is your new SOG, how about you put it out there to the training, get that group of guys together, and we say, look, we're 85% on board with this. And I'm not talking about saving the baby by committee, okay, because we're going to have 200 different opinions on stuff. But coming in and saying, look, here's our goal. Make the goal very clear to everybody and say, this is what we want to do. Here's why we're trying to change it. When people understand the why behind something, they, they, they can buy into it. And it's okay for them to ask why. And it's you can't get butt hurt as a chief officer, as a lieutenant, or anybody with a bugle on their on their front piece when someone says, "Well, why is that?" You know, there's a way and manner to ask that question. But still, nevertheless, if they understand why they're doing something, they buy into it. But when you train and your SOG comes out of training versus trying to train to an SOG or an MOP or whatever the latest and greatest uh, operational guidelines going to be this week. 
you know, that's what's tough because right away the firefighters, the boots on the ground. I mean, if, if it doesn't pass the sniff test right away, they don't buy into it and they're they're going to discount it and go back to what they know. And that goes back to the you know, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, and D shift fire department. So I want to throw that to you guys from your experience. I know some of you have been brought into that in your own uh, career departments. Do you see a better way to, if a chief officer or the administration comes in and says, we want to be better at X, Y, and Z, here's why we want to be better. And like you guys said, if there's a trigger event that, occur- that occurred, then everyone's under the gun to make it happen. But you know, if we're being proactive and say, we want to be better at truck placement, we want to be better at you know doing whatever, how, how do we – how do we more proactively go and bridge that gap? Because you know, Mike, I agree, it, you know, it can be done. It's just how do we how do we create that willingness that the the administration will come down and say, okay, here's what what we need to do. Here's why we need to do it. And you guys are the smart ones, the boots on the ground. You give your feedback, and then we we will build the SOP after we train to it and work the bugs out versus throwing an SOP down your throat and then you know, making you live with it on the street. So. Um, yeah, I kind of threw that grenade at you guys, but I, you know, I want to get some feedback on that for the audience. No, but I agree with what you're saying because I've had this discussion probably this week with my guys is saying instead of throwing an SOP out there or some kind of uh, a change in tactics or whatever, let's, let's try it. Let's do a trial period, maybe three months. Let's see if it actually works and work the bugs out instead of writing the SOP. And now it's we're, we're bound to that SOP. You know, let's let's do a trial period. And uh, that's something we don't do where I'm at. It's uh, pretty much it's it's if it's written. That's what we have to do. Effective on that date. So um, and then hopefully we have some input to maybe tweak it some if they want to or not. So um, but I I see maybe a trial period if, if, if that's feasible. And that, and to the point you guys made before, that you know, a lot of the people who are writing this—not that they're—they're they're not bad or stupid people. And they might have a lot of great experience, but the recent recency of that experience and the conditions, they might not have ridden backwards in a long time or, or been in that position where they have to make a decision. So, right. it could come down to equipment. It could come down to personnel. All that, you know. So, with that's why, if you ask me, it should be just just some kind of trial period to see if it actually does work, if it fits for us. And if it doesn't, let's go to plan B. Mike, what do you guys think? Well, and like I was saying before, a lot of times, instead of the, this is the way we're going to do it coming from the top down, if it's done at the bottom and then thrown up to them, you know, like I said, with our, with our rope stuff or, or, or anything, you know, if you get, you know, this is the way we want to, you know, re-rack our lines. Let's get guys from busy companies, busy engine companies, or if this is the way, you know, this is the new way we want to cut these routes. Get guys from busy truck companies or whatever, get them together, let them hash it out. And then, because you, you know how it goes in a fire department, gossip's going to go around. They're going to, you know, it's going to, like within a week, everybody in the department's going to know, hey, man, it's, it's, it's Greg and Mike and Steve. They're on that. They're all working on this new thing for us. You know, this new, you know, how we're going to operate the widget, you know? So those guys are pretty good. They've been around a while instead of, 
you know, Chief John and Chief Joe and somebody else telling us how we're going to do it. It's the guys that are actually going to be doing it all the time, writing the manual and setting the standards. So sometimes that, like, um, I think like Bobby or whoever just said, that's that passes a sniff test a little easier because the guys know it's it's been thought out a little bit more than just somebody sitting behind a desk and just put trying to shove it down your throat. So. Yeah, I, I think recognizing that change isn't a bad word anymore is a, will go a long way. Um, you know, th things are always changing around us. It's, uh, you know, tradition is very important to have. However, uh, there are certain elements of it when it comes to operations and, and things of that nature that you have to accept and, and adopt that change is good. Uh, and you, you need to, to kind of live by that law. Uh, an example would be, you know, up, up in Baltimore, one thing that they've started doing now in the academy is they've invited some, uh, some of us from the field uh, specifically to our, you know, to our discipline. Uh, they brought some truck company operators in and some, um, some engine company fellows, and they've allowed us to revamp the training manual make it more of a living document than it has been in the past understanding that change is important as construction changes apparatus changes technology advances that we need to also change with it or uh, you know we're going to become a dinosaur uh, individually so it's it is important that you know we adopt those new proactive approaches to to our training um, you know, we've also brought in uh, members of, you know, reputable members of, of truck companies and engine companies to do retraining with our with our companies out in the field. So they've went around and, and collected, uh, you know, groups of uh, truck men that they, they have a good reputation. They brought them out to the academy and one day a week, um, you know, we'll be teaching out there. And they will send uh, a, a truck or two to us for the day, and we will just go over new tactics uh, that have been developed in the city and uh, tactics that are appropriate for us. Um, just new ways of doing things, or more advanced ways of doing things, and and uh, you know we we take that time to to ping pong back and forth and learn from each other and and to teach some new things. So you know we're doing that with our truck companies, we're doing that with our engine companies, so that you not only get the academy way much like every major department gets but after you learn all that you're coming back to the academy and being taught by firefighters that are active in the city um, and you're being taught those baltimore quote unquote tactics uh, that can help you within your respective jurisdictions of baltimore uh, because as I said again, you know, in these major areas, uh, administration has to realize that uh, there are fire companies within their fire department and they do things completely different. Um, and they are just an invaluable resource. You know, they're, they're priceless to have guys like that that are students of their trade and then also want to disseminate that information and knowledge that they have. But they, those guys have to be brought together. Um, going back to you know what we talked about with that disconnect you can't be reliant on administration 
to teach new tactics and strategies. That disconnect is there. It's, it is what it is. Uh, you know that taking that position, that, that disconnect is going to happen. That's just part of, uh, of becoming administration. And that's okay. There's no problem with that. It's just important to remember that you must always have guys in place uh, that you respect and that you can uh, lean on to bridge that gap. There has to be men in place to bridge the gap from the trenches to the offices. And they have, they, they have to, you know, not, they do have to bear the burden of training, but at the same time, um, they have to be, uh, you know, they, they kind of have to be held um, and, and put up on that mantle and, um, and, and be acknowledged. I think that that is a, it's an invaluable thing in the fire department to have no matter what size of the department. Yeah, and Mike, I, I agree with you. Ben, if you don't mind, uh, while we're waiting for Steve to come back, uh, Brother Justin here had a question uh, asking specific to Steve if um, your members have a riding backwards have any input uh, on the SOG or MOP uh, during the trial period, or is this something that's just pushed down from upper management? And uh, you know, want Steve to weigh in on that, but just to kind of pseudo answer that before he gets back on, uh, one of the things that I would say, you know, with that is, and maybe this is just the, the you know, the leadership and supervision uh, courses that we teach coming out. But when we talk about that 360 degree leadership, we talk about those circles of influence and control. And, you know, that, that inner circle is what you control. That's your, you know, your ability to get up, uh, go to work on time, show up to work on time, you know, train no matter what anyone else is doing, your, your attitude and your, your work performance. And then you have that circle of influence, and then the outer circle is where you have no influence or control whatsoever. So I would say, and not speaking for Steve, because I want him to weigh in on it, but honestly, I think it's really how you bring it up. Um, if you have those company-level officers or administrative-level officers that you can go and say, hey, you know, chief, captain, whomever, here's, here's something that I think can make this better, and the way you frame it to them. Because, look, people are people, and you guys have worked with this, you know, where we've had that you know, very ego-driven officer that you really got to pat him on the behind and make him feel good about himself and others that you could go up to him and, you know, really question their mother's lineage and they'd still be okay with you because they know you're being honest with them. So, um, you know, from that perspective, I think that, yes, people riding backwards do have an influence and they channel it up through their company-level officers, but the wisdom is truly in the trenches, man. I mean, the guys, the boots on the ground are doing this every day and stuff that looks good on paper um, or as bullet points, doesn't always pan out on the street. So, um, you know, while we're waiting for Steve to come back on, uh, you know, Dip or Bobby or uh, Mike, do you guys have any thoughts on that as far as the influence from the bottom up? Can I, well, um, can I jump ahead. in real quick? Yeah. We, we, um, it, it's been a little while now, but we, we changed from our bumper loads from a Kentland-style load uh, to the Lexington load that we saw in Ocean City, um, and that was that was something that we started from the from the bottom up. And um, you know, we wrote up the proposal, we sent it up, and and like Stephen mentioned, we got to do a trial. Um, one of the things that we identified was an issue with for us in, in the Salisbury Fire Department was we did a trial of that um, of that load just on one engine. Um, so we're, we're staffing two engines, one truck, um, and only that one engine had the Lexington load on it. So when we went to our next trial, 
uh, and I'm sorry, after that trial period was over for the Lexington load, we, we ended up putting that across the department for all the, all the, um, frontline apparatus. And then the next trial that we did, we, we added a 350 line off the back. And that was something that we ended up changing and putting on all of our engines across the department. So it didn't matter if you were at 16 or one, um, we had that same thing and it was, uh, much better received that way because everybody got the opportunity to see it in their firehouse. Everybody got the opportunity to train with it and, and become comfortable with it. Um, and I think we were also um, blessed with, with our upper management. Um, you know, our fire chief, he said, I'm not going to pull it. I don't really like, he doesn't, he doesn't say he doesn't care, but like he, like I said, he's not pulling it. So if it's something that, that we think as the people riding the apparatus every day um, is going to make us better, that, that that's what we're going to go with. Um, so as long as, as he's getting positive feedback and it's coming up through that, that, you know, he's, he's on board with it. So um, just, just something from the uh, volunteer combination side with that. So. Sorry about that. My uh, daughter called. <laughs> so the question, I forget the, I, I, I can hear you, but what was the question again? So I can answer the young man's question. So the, the question was, is do you think the members riding backwards have any input on that SOG or MOP trial period, or is that just um, upper management to make those recommendations? We did in the past. Um, I believe I, I now it pretty much comes from upper management um, or not even upper management. We'll say even, but like battalion chief and, and above. Um, uh, not too much of even lieutenant and below we might have a suggestion but uh the sop or sog will be written and implemented without input from the lower half at all so and then we're, and it's kind of forced and we're the ones that are going to have to uh to uh work with the bugs and get them out um but still the sop will stand as written if that helps Actually, Steve, it does. And um, Bobby and Mike, uh, especially for this, and, and you as well, Ben, I want to uh, focus in on Scotty's question. He says, on the volunteer side, any ideas on how to keep your training interesting so that the members want to, uh, want to attend? And I know this is always a, a challenge because we're trying to keep things fresh. We're trying to keep people engaged. Um, I'll, I'll throw or I'll weigh in on this real quick, and I want to go to you guys. One of the things that I found valuable on the volunteer end is making it specific to the individual. And we, I'm not talking about having a individual training program for each person, but for the riding positions we have on the engine. So if, you, if you've got the irons, you need to be the best person at the irons you possibly can be if you're riding, um, if you're riding third. If you're, ri if you're riding behind the, um, you know, if you're riding behind the driver and you've got the hook in the can, you need to know the functions of that. So sometimes we you know, we take each one of the riding positions, not saying that the volunteers are always going to be guaranteed to be in that position, but some are. Um, and that you know, we kind of go around the horn a little bit. So it's essentially saying, all right, we're going to make it very job specific. And that gives them a, you know, an experience I've had so far with uh, some of the volunteers in my department is that gives them a lot more confidence and proficiency to say, hey, if, if you're riding this position, this is your job. Know how to do your job. Know how to do your job well. And if you have questions or you don't know how to do it, we're going to train on it until you can't get it wrong. So that's just one of those things we looked at to see you know, for to make it um, riding riding position specific. That's kind of helped out to keep it fresh and, and tangible for that individual member. So, Bobby, what do you think? 
turn my mic off. <laughs> um, well, I, actually, that's what tonight's all about. Um, so the, the three gentlemen we have here, uh, I don't want to really talk about it because we got these guys here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I suspected are different with larger urban metropolitan departments. And uh, I think we've heard the challenges they have with their training. So I think what we're going to ask these three guys, instead of me taking up time, is you've been involved in uh, urban departments. Um, and now you've all been involved in small uh, volunteer or combination departments, which is where my whole career has been in those areas. Um, what do you say we can do better? What are the challenges in training of these smaller mixed or volunteer fire departments? And what are the things that you think that you could do better by seeing both? Because you guys have been in both worlds um, and seen both worlds. So give us some advice on how we could do better with training in either small mixed or volunteer fire departments, if you guys would. Um, whoever wants to start off. Um, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll give, I'll give kudos to Mike. He's doing to kind of answer Doug's question. Hi, Doug, if you're paying it. Hi, Doug, if you're listening. Um, don't always just train at the firehouse. Mike's found us, um, you know, through some demolition contractors. We've been going out to some actual buildings that are getting ready to get demoed. I mean, they're, they're all safe. They're still sound. They're not, you know, being held up by toothpicks and doing evolutions there. You're not just doing pulling a hand line in the parking lot. Anybody can do that. But Mike's trying to make it interesting is, hey, we got this building. Let's go do this. You know, so change of scenery sometimes might just be all that you need to to spark some interest. And then, you know, the guys will get back and then they'll call somebody, man, where are we at drill tonight? We weren't at the firehouse. We went up to, you know, the ABC restaurants getting ready to get tore down. Man, we pulled hand lines through there, through ladders, you know, busted windows. We actually got to do things instead of simulating doing them so that that might be a one way to uh try to peak interest so bobby you said something about the struggles of uh i guess training for rural or combination departments that is the struggle <laughs> is that that totally because this is a i'll give you for instance just to say you have a young firefighter who is into the job in the training, uh, you know, what's once the knowledge, once the skills and you're training him, you're going to lose him or her to a career department because that's going to be their vision. And then within, you know, three to five years, you're going to be starting over again and trying to find that fit. So the struggle for that, that role, uh, combination department is the struggle of just keeping those members. So that's, that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that is a, that is a major struggle in, uh, in a volunteer or mixed department. Um, going to what Dipsky said, that is, I think, vital when it comes to any training is to make it as realistic as you possibly can and make it related to um, your jurisdiction, not just something you saw on the internet, not something that happened in FDNY, uh, but make it so that it's tailored specifically to your manpower, to your jurisdictional needs, 
uh, all the way down to your apparatus and the tools that, that you're carrying, not what you saw on the internet or what another department does. I think if you can tie that in to your training uh, and then, uh, as Dipsy said, change the environment up, put them in a, the most realistic environment possible, then you're going to uh, create an atmosphere of learning that far surpasses sitting around uh, doing a chalk talk or pulling lines in the back parking lot. Um, you know, that is important. And um, to piggyback on, on what Steve just said, you know, uh, one major plague uh, of a mixed department and, you know, the, and specific, even more specifically, the volunteer department is the turnover rate is, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, is astronomical, but the culture in itself uh, is more important than, than the training uh, in any department. That's a, that's just a general rule. And I think a lot of departments, a smaller struggle with their culture uh, and, and what they want to be. Do they want to be a traditional fire department? Do they need to be a department that is more dynamic? Um, you know, we talked earlier about having specific riding positions. Trevor brought that up, like teaching them to riding positions. Uh, and that's all culture. That's, that, that, that's what a department culture calls for. Um, and some departments have that, you know, Ocean City is one that doesn't. It, you are riding in one position on one shift and then a completely different one on the next with a completely different crew. Um, so you, you're taking a lot of what, what I think firefighters really value when they enter this job. And it doesn't matter whether they enter it from a volunteer standpoint or whether they, um, you know, go to a major city. They get in the job because of what they think the culture is going to be. And then they're either going to be disappointed by it or, and let down, or they're going to um, embrace whatever that culture is and, um, and, want to, and want to prolong it and promote it. So I, I think the struggle of finding the culture, finding your specific culture is, is first and foremost before you ever discuss how to make training better because that is where your, your initial buy-in comes into play. Uh, and volunteer organizations are a plague not only by the revolving door of its personnel um, as, it, as it recruits and loses, uh, you know, the attrition rate, but they're also plagued by the, the turnover of their administration. Mm -hmm. um, that administration, the administrative turnover and even your, your, uh, you know, your officers that are in the field is so regular that de developing a culture that's going to stick is going to be difficult to do uh, because of, of that turnover. Uh, because with every turnover comes a new idea. With every new chief comes a new way. With every new lieutenant, year to year becomes a, a new, uh, you know, a new field commander. And the culture, if it's not solidified, um, is non-existent. And a lot of your other buy-ins get lost because of it uh, at the firefighter level. So, you know, that is something that plagues, I think, uh, the volunteer world is trying to lay a, a foundation 
that their culture will thrive in regardless of the rapid turnover rates of their administration. And I think that that proves to be a problem because volunteer organizations are heavily reliant on their administration for everything. Whereas, you know, in major cities, of course, our administration dictates policy. But as we already talked about, you know, in the last hour, um, yeah, sure, administration dictates your MOPs and, um, you know, your academy, you know, puts, puts out there its basic training. But the meat and potatoes of the training for any jurisdiction does not come from its academy. It comes from its men out in the field, its senior men, its veterans. Mm-hmm. That's where that, that the meat and potatoes come from. And um, that is something that hampers the volunteer world. Uh, you know, and I say that because of the turnover. I can specifically tell you that uh, my truck company, the people that I've been working with, I was working up until very recently with the same guys, um, with the exception of, of one officer turnover for the last 13 years. That's 13 years with the same men beside you, riding in the front seats, riding in the back seats. You grow up with these men. And um, the training ensues off of incident after after incident after incident. Um, you go out there and you do more and more training. And for departments that don't have crew integrity, for departments that don't have the ability to experience these incidents at a regular clip, it becomes very difficult to instill that buy-in without a solid culture to lean on. Because at the end of the day, when you don't have the incidents, you don't have the crew integrity, um, even if training is uh, subpar, the fallback is always the culture, what was already pre-established. And and I think that that's something that uh, is not addressed as much as it should be. We always try to put emphasis on, well, we're just not trained enough or whether we, maybe we just need to change our hiring practices um, or this or that, or it's the apparatus or, you know, what have you. There's a, there's a whole slew of excuses, but um, culture is ultimately the most important thing, I think. And uh, that's dictated mostly by the administration um, in both services. Uh, And it is, carried out throughout the generations by the trench, the guys that are in the trenches, but it's, um, you know, it starts at the top. Very well put. Yeah. Um, Ben, I, I think I'm gonna do my closing. We're going over an hour now. Um, Go ahead, brother. I think, yeah. I think, I think, um, from, from doing training for a long time, and I know Steve taught with me for a while at Delaware State Fire School, which is a statewide fire academy, basically for volunteers. Um, and we did that for a while. And I, I'll never forget it. I worked with a guy, I'll call him out, Scotty Lawson, a well-respected captain from Fairfax County that happened to live in Delaware and helped us teach. And we used to teach with a hard fist back then, many, many, many years ago. And we just... You know, if you didn't crawl in the building, we could crawl around the building after you got out and embarrass you and, 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 and things like that. 
And I remember Scotty, we were doing some of that stuff, and, and we did it because we thought that it would add the uh, stress to the firefighter that you couldn't give in a burn building was a, was a reason why we said we did it. And Scotty said, what are you guys doing? And I said, we're, we're doing this. We're doing this because we want to get into the reality. And he's like, we don't have time for this. He said, you got enough time to explain to these people what they want, what you want them to do. They have enough time to do it. And you have enough time to explain them what they did. So they're crawling around the building in the grass outside. They're not learning anything. And um, I kind of stepped back for a minute and thought, yeah. And, and I, I thought maybe there's something to this. And then I think FDIC um, was kind of a, a, an opening to me. When FDIC many years ago used to be really for instructors um, years ago. It was pretty much more of a training academy kind of thing now for learning things. But it was an instructor thing. And everything that we were learning in FDIC was taught with respect. So if, if, if Greg Dipsy was teaching something or Trevor or Mike was teaching something out there, it was in the eyes of I'm going to teach another instructor how to teach this. And it was very respectful. Um, and what I learned through all of this, with the exception of the very beginning basic training that these guys and girls get, uh, what I learned from all of this is that if you do disrespectful training, they're not going to learn a thing. If you, if you talk down to these people, if you treat them like dogs, um, if you, you know, if you make them crawl around the building outside, they are simply not going to learn anything except for you're a jerk. Um, that's all their, their take home is going to be that. And so I think the idea is, is to have respect, but not be a coward. That means have respect, but don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in at the same time. But, you know, if Greg and I are teaching people how to cut metal and we have a volunteer guy that's brand new in there. And he's come out of 20 years working in the welding shop. I'm pretty sure he knows more about cutting metal than we do. And that's kind of that respect thing is everybody on the job knows something that we don't know, no matter where we are in that job. And so that's that's where that respect comes from. We don't know what anyone's background is, really. Um, and so I think I've always found that, especially like with strike the box training, is that respectful training just gets way, way better results. Um, in the whole thing. So I think that's one of my messages to all the small volunteer fire departments is back down a little bit, go about 80 or 90%, give people a little room to learn. Uh, don't be so critical and kind of let things flow. And, and I think, I think things kind of go better that way. So thank you for you three guys coming on. It's been awesome. I learned things about departments I've never been involved with. Um, it's been great hearing you guys and uh, thanks everybody for watching. So, all right, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you very much. Dip, you wanna you wanna have any closing thoughts? Or share some closing thoughts with us? Well, um, one of the one of the things that for anybody who's out there, just because you've done it once doesn't mean you're proficient at it. You you know, you oh I, I pulled a handline last week at training. Well, this week we're gonna pull handlines again. Nah, I'm not gonna show up for training. I've done it once. So a lot of times people think that's automatically going to come back. No, it's, uh, you hear it all over the place, sets and reps, sets and reps. You got to do it and use one of Bobby McGee's things about football. That team didn't run that play on a whim. They practiced it and practiced it and practiced it the whole time until they couldn't get it wrong, until it was muscle memory. That should be the way when you do training, just don't think I've done it once. I've got this and then move on. So 
that's always trained. There's all, I've been in the fire service for a long time and I'm still learning something new. Mike's taken over. Mike showed us some different ways I never even thought of to, uh, to throw ladders and, and to heal and do so, you know, it's, you're always learning. If you think you've, you've known it, you if you, excuse me, if you think that you know it all, you're in the wrong profession or volunteer or career. It doesn't matter. You're in the wrong trade. If you think you know it all, there's always something new out there. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Steve. Uh, this has been fun. Thank you very much. And the only thing I would say is master the basics. It, it, it's key. Thank you. Thank you. Michael. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think Stephen and, and uh, Dipsky said it uh, the best you can, you know, you have to be a self-starter. Um, don't come in the firehouse and get to know the remote control better than, you know, the tools on your rig. Um, you have to be a self-starter. You have to be a student of the trade and, um, and you, you need, that is contagious. It's important to have people like that around you. It is contagious. Unfortunately, so is laziness. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have to find it in yourself to, to, you know, want to do that on a daily basis when you come to work. And, um, and by far, the fundamentals are the most important thing in this job. The fundamentals are the foundation for everything else you're going to do. So, um, you know, that they have to be, uh, that time has got to be spent on them uh, and, and promoting them um, at all levels of, of training. So, and thank you guys so much. It was awesome being with all you guys. Great conversation, great questions. Hey, Mike, real quick, yes, to, to play off what you, a couple of years ago at FDIC, one of the instructors said, don't go to the firehouse and become a recliner pilot. <laughs> or don't fly the recliner. <laughs> so I thought it was kind of funny. But right. What you just said. Don't don't become a recliner pilot. Right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> That's good stuff. Boss man. All right, brothers. Thank you all for being on here. Again, uh, these are folks that around this screen I have a great deal of respect for because they're firemen. Um, and what that means is that you know, they've They've been there, they've done that, they've paid their pound of flesh, but they want to make sure that other people learn from not only the good things they've done, but also some of the mistakes they might have made. So that's what it's all about is passing this information along. Um, you know, I, I look back over my career, I've had a great career, and you know, uh, I was fortunate to have a Dougie Scott, who when I was a, a cadet, as Greg was mentioning earlier, that junior person who would come in you know, right after I got out of high school English class and came in and said, Oh, Mr. Scott, will you please teach me how to use this humid valve or show me some hot? And I guarantee he was probably tired. He would love to have been sitting down and be, being that recliner pilot. Not that he ever was, but, you know, he might have had you know, young kids at home and was coming to work to get a break. You know how that goes sometimes. But this is a guy who, no matter what, would you know, if, if I asked to say, hey, I want to learn something, he would take the next several hours just to take me out back to the fire station or back to Northside Park and make sure that you know, whatever question I had was answered and answered well and that I knew what I was doing at the end of that. So strive to be that kind of officer, you know, the, the Doug Scotts of the world, uh, you know, those, those kind of people who really kind of you know, establish that kind of credibility because no matter what their title is at the time, they want to make sure they pass that along. So whether you've been in for six months, six years, six days, or 60 years, 
your obligation is to pass it along. And all, all the folks on this screen have that same mindset that they have, they have that culture of training. And yes, there's time and place that we, you know, we try to you break, break someone down to build them back up in the academies. There's, there's time and place and purpose for that. But when we're trying to share information at the company level, um, you know, especially these are the people, the brothers and sisters we're working at or working with, whether they're career or volunteer. So, yeah, I just definitely want to throw that uh, shout out to Scotty. And one last thing, too, is the, a lot of times we'll use our younger members, our probationary members sometimes to do teachbacks and say, all right, hey, um, company drill today is you're going to show us everything about the uh, two and a half gallon pressurized water extinguisher. You're doing the company drill today. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how much time and research they'll put into it, this. And here they're they're having to teach to a company full of folks that are way senior to them and have used that tool a million times over. But every now and then the old dogs learn a new trick and it's kind of interesting to see, but it also builds that younger person's confidence and they're, they're part of us. They understand how important it is. And it's that culture training that starts out and that their, their word and their ability to help try to teach the rest of the crew and everybody paying full attention to it, not sit there, you know, playing on their cell phones or doing stupid crap. You know, they're paying attention and, trying to mentor this person so it starts early um you know in the academies yes they teach minimum standards and if you only stick to minimum standards only expect minimum results you've got to go past that and everybody on this screen takes that to heart and have developed a lot of firefighters and you know it's, it's about firemen teaching firemen how to be firemen so um yeah i appreciate everybody on here and uh thank you for all the time and effort you put in so with that man, Trevor, i got one thing yes sir if you got a second talk i got a that. second it's your house. We're paying rent, bro. Sorry. When I was officer rescue two, one of the um, one of the senior technicians on the other shift, uh, Billy Wetzel. I don't know if anybody knows Billy, but um, he told me about a thing they did on their shift, and I started implementing on my shift. The dice game. Come in and all right, drill today. Everybody here's dice. Whoever rolls the first person to roll doubles has drill today. So then you got guys on their days off, like you said, Trevor, or research or something, because they never know. They might roll doubles or, you know, next time, okay, first person to roll a six, you know, whatever. And then, you know, over a couple of weeks, then I had guys coming to me in the morning saying, Lou, we don't even need to do the dice game. I want to do drill today. I've, I've researched this. This is what I want to go over. So that belt, you know, the guys were like, it, it, it a snowball effect. So that's just one different way to, you know, get the guys in training. So, that's, that's awesome. I, I never heard about that. And, and besides the fact you all may have a gambling problem, that's a great uh, – that's, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. They won't look through the dice against the wall. Yeah, but it just, it just snowballed into the guy. After that, we didn't, we didn't even break the dice out. The guys came in and were like – no, and they were they started arguing. No, man, next tour I'm going to do drill. And it's – you know, no, I got it. You know, so it was, That's awesome. So it was pretty cool, yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing. Up. That's yeah. sweet. I like yeah. it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're going to wrap it up here, folks. Um, a great, another great show. Uh, thanks again to, to Dip, Steve, and Michael for for joining us tonight. It was awesome. Um, the only thing, the only final comments that that I would add, um, you know, Mike made a great comment about the culture and building that in your station and your department, and that is huge. It shows the new members the buy in from the from the leadership and the dedication that they have to have that. Um, and if, if, if the new people are coming in and they're seeing this, they're, they're seeing their culture, they, they want to be a part of that. They, they joined to be a part of something. So um, to help help them do that. And then the only last thing I would say is you have to make it fun. 
Like we can, you can do all this kind of stuff. You can do all the training, but if they're not, if there's not some enjoyment, if it, there's not some sort of camaraderie, some of that brotherhood, um, sisterhood that you're getting through that, um, then, then we need to kind of change our approach a little bit. Cause if it's not fun and, and you're like, like Bobby was mentioning, you know, I'm just getting my dick kicked in every time I do this. Well, I'm not coming back. So make it fun, make it enjoyable. So, um, that's all we have for tonight. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks on the 18th. Uh, we're going to be doing, we're going to be talking. <laughs> I'm going to say we're going to be doing, that would be wrong. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, with a couple ladies about women in the fire service. Now we put it all together and that's where it's really messed up. So I apologize. Uh, February 18th, women in the fire service. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble already. So again, ben thanks for joining us. <laughs> say what? <laughs> Ben may not be here, but we'll have. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to be allowed to come back on. So, some great news. If you guys haven't seen um, Strike the Box Thirsty Thursdays, we now are on podcasts, so you can get it on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, all kinds of stuff. So, if you guys are, are looking for some listening uh, material on your travels, you don't have to go and have YouTube open on your phone the whole time. You can get it and download it to your phone. Um, and we also, on our website, we have an online store where you can get some apparel, uh, hats and, and decals, that kind of stuff. So um, check that out. And uh, until then, we'll see you on the 18th. So everybody stay safe, be good, take care. And cheers, brothers. Thanks, guys. It was a good one. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank cheers. you. Deuces.